I really look at getting fired as the, besides getting into NYU, one of the best things that happened to me because I had just fallen into kind of a, like, oh, this is easy. Like, I'm getting a good paycheck. The, the other stuff will come, but it wasn't going to come. I needed to get fired. I needed to get uh, literally the fire lit under my ass. And I haven't had a day job since. Listening to Inside Acting, a podcast dedicated to demystifying the inner and outer game of success in the entertainment industry. I'm AJ Meyer. And I'm Trevor Algott. And coming up in episode 267 today, I sit down for part one of my chat with director Brian Beasley to talk about his unique journey into the entertainment industry, all the way from Oklahoma through New York to LA, working for Sigarney Weaver, the gift of getting fired and how it really all does come down to who you know and who knows you. There's no secrets in this one, guys. It's just good old-fashioned hustle, relationships, and commitment. Episode 267. Stay with us. Support for this episode of Inside Acting is brought to you in part by Rehearsal Pro, the next version of Rehearsal, the essential app for actors. I've been using it a lot lately, guys. It's now available in the iTunes App Store. So if you want to learn your lines, be off book for your auditions, explore your character, make stronger choices, and do a whole lot more, go right now to rehearsal.pro slash IAP to learn about all the great new features in the newest version of Rehearsal, the groundbreaking app designed by actors for actors. That's rehearsal.pro slash IAP. Hello, sir. Hey, you've had a, a, a busy couple weeks, man, between um, auditions and workshops and jobs. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been good news. It's been good news. We've actually got some good news just on the podcast front to, to get through real quickly here. Uh, just some cool stuff that I think people will, hopefully listening, will, will appreciate. Number one, the Inside Acting podcast that you're listening to is now available on Google Play. So for Woo-hoo! our Android users and um, Google Play users and people who get all their podcasts through that channel, uh, Inside Acting is now available there. So check it out. There's a link on our website. It'll be in the website show notes for every episode now on. And if if you're if that's the ecosystem you're plugged into now, Inside Acting is available there too. So. That's cool. Number two, Godali's Kickstarter, we're proud to report, was successfully funded. Boom shakalaka. I think he ended up raising like... He ended up raising almost $12,000, I think. So Um, cool. So he's got a nice budget to create a great film with his award-winning director of a brother uh, helming it. So uh, I can't wait, man. Like I said, like we said before, Godali's got a really unique skill set and sense of humor and unique taste. And I think he's going to create something really fun. So very excited for for him and for that. And and thank you. I was looking at the list of contributors. So many Inside Acting listeners jumped in and contributed to that. That's so cool. Proud daddy moment, you know? <laughs> I love to watching the, you know, because we've sort of seen behind the curtain just a little bit with uh, Alex Boylan. Like just seeing the kind of, you know, watching him um, – <clears throat> utilize some of her tips and strategies and, and watching it sort of play out and then it it 
completely worked. I mean, it's funded, obviously, but it was, I don't know, that was a really cool, like, peek, peek behind the curtain. Totally. You know yeah, if you're listening to this and you've got a crowdfunding campaign going on or one that you're thinking of starting, I can think of one listener, a longtime listener and supporter, Michael Lutheran, who's going to be starting his own acting-centric podcast called Hollywood Hustle. I've just seen it, it sort of battered about on Twitter. I don't know much about it, um, but I'm excited to hear more about it. I think his, his, his uh, campaign kicks off on the 20th of the month, which is tomorrow as of this recording so by the time you guys are hearing this that campaign should be live but um if you are in a situation similar to that check out leah savoli's episodes and alexandra boyland's episodes uh, because they are all about creating your own work on a shoestring budget creating successful crowdfunding campaigns in the membership there's a big summary of of leah's uh best tips for how to successfully crowdfund so um, lots of resources there, hopefully, for people to, to take advantage of, to, to make their own work. And speaking of making your own work, there are two examples that were recently sort of brought to our attention here uh, at Inside Acting HQ. And one of them comes from uh, another longtime listener and supporter, Stephen Phillips, who uh, has a, a really well-produced and funny show on the web called The Brothers Phillips that he does with his brother. And they did a special Valentine's Day episode a week or two ago and released it. And it's really high quality stuff, really fun, really well done. He shared this with the podcast. And the same week, we had another listener write in named Robert Zazali. I hope I'm saying your, your last name right, Robert. But he created a, a web series called Right Hand Man. And it's about you know having a puppet and this guy getting back into dating. And, and it was also just so well done. And it was so cool to just see these people using not just one aspect of their talent and creativity and awareness, but all aspects of it and creating an entire show that people can plug into. I mean, this is, this is, they're actively creating uh, their own little corner of culture. And I just, I love it. Both of these examples are great examples of actors taking the reins, creating really high quality, engaging stories that are showcasing their brand and their talent. And it just, it just goes to show there's no excuses. So check out their work. Both of those links are in the show notes this episode. So uh, check them out. You can contact those guys. Get your own project rolling. The membership is a great place to start brainstorming with people and seeing who knows who to get your project off the ground. But I wanted to highlight those because I'm just so inspired by what people are creating. And it's so cool that they write to us and say, thanks to your podcast, I, I went forward with this. I actually went ahead and made this. That was cool. It's so cool. And we've got, you know, a great follow up guest to uh, Brian. We're still putting together the scheduling for the interview, but just someone who took a short film and used it for as the tool for the, the sort of the dream scenario where they use it as a calling card to get themselves a really awesome high end agent, uh, used it as a way of leveraging uh, interest and money for the feature length film version of the short film. So we're, we're getting back to a lot of this DIY stuff right now. And I, and hopefully between the inspiration of the other listeners and some of these guests that we're sourcing for people, it, it will, it will give people the, the, both the inspiration and the tools to make this kind of stuff happen. You know? Mm, yeah. You know, that's a great segue too, because speaking of DIY, I've always seen, the way to sort of establishing yourself in this industry, I've seen it really kind of, I mean, this is a gross oversimplification, but seeing it really as either, like I've said before, focusing on becoming a hired gun, you know, an actor for hire, you, you get out there, you present your work, 
you know, as Michael um, Kostroff says, you know, you're you're an actor. You know, you go around from from place to place and you say, these are my services. How can I help you? And or you focus on creating your own content and become a producer, actor, a writer, actor, a director, actor. And one of the ways that you would do the former or one of the popular ways you do in the former. And we, we actually did a poll with our listeners not too long ago where most of our listeners said this was a necessary evil. But one of the ways to do it was to go to these paid casting director workshops, which we've talked about so many times in the show and hopefully featured both sides of the argument fairly and and equitably. But it turns out, Jen brought this to our attention this week, that uh, five of these casting workshops have now officially been charged by uh, by the L.A. City Attorney General in pay-to-play, being basically pay-to-play scams, five, including some big ones like the actor's key. It's kind of nuts. This is the kind of thing that people have been talking about for so long. Like, I can't wait till these things get shut down. And it always seemed like kind of a pipe dream. It was like, okay, you know, get in line. But now it's actually happening. Five of these major ones are getting charged files are being i'm sorry charges are being brought in brought in brought in's a word now charges are being brought <laughs> it is now charges are being brought against 25 different people that are at the head of these of these these um organizations these workshop organizations i mean it's it's kind of crazy uh we've got links to both of these uh articles on our website one of them is about a minute and a half video from the hollywood reporter and the other one's a statement from eric garcetti mayor eric garcetti um Interesting stuff. Any any thoughts on that, AJ? Anything you want to share on that? I don't know. It kind of, after all the talk and and bringing these bringing people onto the show and having the pro and against arguments, I I, I guess my first instinct was like this. It just feels like so much like a big giant hammer coming down to squash a, a pretty i mean i don't know maybe they're making money hand over fist maybe they're making millions of dollars i don't know but it doesn't seem that way i'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing it just seems like big it seems kind of epic you know to 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 charge five uh different businesses 25 people at the top and who knows what they're being charged i mean is this are these criminal charges are they civil charge like what's going to happen are these people going to go to jail like that seems excessive to me i know uh you know someone who's staunchly against them like a billy demoto is probably like you know really excited about this but <clears throat> i don't know it just to me it seems like a lot <laughs> it's all, that's the only description i can think of to to kind of describe it. Yeah. What comes up for me is this, the, you know, what David Lawrence was talking about when we featured his, his statement or, or viewpoint on this. And, you know, he said like, look, it happens in every industry all over the world. And if you shut it down at the sort of top level, like they are right now, it's, it's still like, it's still going to happen in like a church basement somewhere or in some empty playhouse yeah. at some point, actors are going to yeah. get together and offer to buy the friend of a friend who knows the casting director a pizza or a sandwich or something if they come and do a night with scenes and and it's just going to start all over again and eventually it's going to become formalized people will find ways around it so the charges i believe are for violating the um krikorian act which i think went official right. in like 2010 2011 and and so yeah but i, I don't know are they going to go to jail or who knows but clearly it uh was finally recognized as a very illegal thing to to take advantage of actors in this way, whether you view it as taking advantage of actors or not. Um, yeah. Apparently the law believes that that's the case. And then, you know, as Michael Donovan said, when we had him on other, I think this is going to cause other casting directors or even uh, casting directors or casting workshop uh, businesses to become extremely timid 
the ones that some might argue are perfectly legitimate may end up being, like I said, they may end up shutting down or, or backing off because of fear of the same thing sort of happening to them. You know, it's like why if 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 we go with what you were just talking about, Trevor, the David H. Lawrence, the seventeenth, we always have to say his full name with David's sort of argument about it, you know, continuing to happen or happening in every industry. Then <clears throat> are we going to start seeing them go after the the types of trade shows, for instance, that David was referring to? Like if there's a trade show. The, the the industry that David always uses is plumbing industry, right? So if there's a trade show for plumbers where it costs plumbers money to go to the trade show to then show their wares to potential uh, customers to Home Depot or something, right? Then does that mean that those are going to start getting shut down? Like why is it that – is it happening and we're just not hearing about it or is it just that they're focused on this one particular thing because it makes – headlines because we're in Los Angeles and it's the entertainment industry. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it brings up an interesting point because it's the difference between a class, something that is that is uh, offered to the public as under the guise of education and like a bona fide showcase where the actors pay to produce these scenes for an audience specifically of people that, that are there to, you know, hobby, obviously hunt down new talent and sign or hire them. So I, I kind of see a little bit of a difference between the two. What if, you know, what happens if like, you know, um, a, a director or a, a, an actor runs an acting studio where they teach acting classes and then they happen to, you know, direct a, a, a feature film or something. And then it's like, hey, you know, it would be great for one of these roles is so and so from my class. Then is that sort of a conflict of interest? Is that a violation? Or do people let that slide because they're not a casting director? You know, these are these are the questions that that like come up for me. And I'm, once again, I'm not saying <clears throat> I'm not even arguing that what what's happening right now is bad. I'm just saying that there are far too many. Uh, it's a far more complex issue than I think the attorney general's office and the media want and po- politicians want to make it. People want to make things so black and white, and I think we have discovered in the history of this podcast this this issue has a lot of gray. There are more than fifty shades of gray in this issue. More, imagine that <laughs> fifty shades grayer. Um, fifty shades sorry. more gray. Fifty more grayer shades than, but there's just a lot of gray. In this in this issue, you know, it's not black and white. And so that's why I'm raising these questions, even if it was just to play devil's advocate, even if I was for if I was like, yes, down with the workshops. I'm so glad this is happening. I think to to be uh, in the position that we are in, Trevor, with a microphone in front of us, we I think it's I think it's our duty to ask these kind of questions. Yeah, I, I, I mean, we, we could talk about this till we're blue in the face, and we often do. I'm really curious to hear what our listeners think. If you guys have strong feelings on this one way or the other, especially now that, like, shit's going down, uh, contact us. Leave us a voicemail. Shoot us an email. Um, shoot us a voice memo, anything at all, um, to sort of let us know where you, where you stand on this issue. We'd really love to hear what other people in other parts of the industry with different perspectives uh, have on this kind of thing. Cause we're, 
you know, we're a specific demographic, you and I, AJ. We're, we're white dudes in our 30s in L.A. with uh, similar backgrounds and training. And I don't know what it's like for somebody in a different market that's a different gender with a different look and different training. I, I want to hear what people think. So let us know, uh, please, what, what, what we're leaving out of this conversation, what we're missing. Ton of time on this episode, but you've got a few things that have been going on. You had a trip out to the. Did you have a trip out to the East Coast? No, I'm I'm leaving on Saturday. And then you, you had a, a paid student film and up for your first pilot audition. So so catch us up on what's been going on in the world of AJ. It's just been like a great busy week for being an actor for myself. I mean, um, it has been so far. I mean, I know it's mid February, so not super surprised. And also, you know, there's just a thing as pilot season anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But haven't had a lot going on. First pilot audition of the season uh, this week. <clears throat> put myself on tape. Noticed that uh, the production company. I I know some. I've talked about this before, but I know someone who works for casting in Sony Pictures Television. And I sent this person an email and was like, "Hey, are you involved with this?" And she was like, "Yeah, but why are you putting yourself on tape? The casting director is actually going to be in." LA for a week. So got on the horn to the reps and now I have an in-person audition. Got a great tape. Uh, it's ready to go. You know, if anything, uh, if, uh, if, if we need sort of follow up and we need to send it to New York, it's, it's there, it's done. It's in the can, so to speak, but, uh, I get to do it in person now. And then I had an audition for a student film that actually pays, which is why I wanted to, I mean, that's the only thing, the only reason I wanted to talk about it. It like blew my mind. I was, I saw the um, <clears throat> appointment come through from my manager, and she was like, "Yeah, it, uh, you know, it, it it may shoot in Texas, and if it does, they'll they'll you know transportation and accommodations will be taken care of, and it also pays. Um, I think it's like a thousand dollars for four, a four day shoot. I'm like, for a student film, sign me up. So I just thought that was really, really cool. It also, I mean, to me, it it says a lot. You know, it's about. Uh, we've talked about this before on the podcast, like pay me a hundred bucks a day, the, the, the whole respect thing. It shows respect for the actors and also says something to me about the quality of the production. Yeah. Level of, level of commitment for sure. Yeah. Yes. Like I feel like there's going to be a, you know, a DP and they're going to have, you know, good equipment and they're going to have a sound person and they're going to have, you know, I, there's some, there's some, um, special effects sort of stunt. There's a fire at the end of the, you know, film. So I'm thinking like it's all going to be, you know, handled really professionally that maybe that's just me projecting, but you know, if they're going to pay the actors to me, that sounds like a, a strong possibility. So anyway, it was just really cool week. I don't know. It felt good. <laughs> it feels good. To, it feels good to be working. 
Additional support for this episode of Inside Acting is also brought to you in part by VO2GoGo.com, the award-winning voiceover training system and winner of Backstage's Reader's Choice Award for Best Voiceover Training four years in a row. Visit VO2GoGo.com slash start for a free getting started in voiceover online class that will help you add voiceover to your acting portfolio. It's a no-brainer. It's free. VO, the number two, gogo.com slash start. And we have a quick question from Edgar. And this is really directed, I think, more towards you, AJ, because you're, you're, you're closer to the world of what Edgar's seeking out. He writes to us and says, uh, he, he loves the podcast. Thank you for your kind words, Edgar. But he says, uh, I also work for Apple. Uh, which we both have worked for Apple. You still work for Apple, AJ. I, I no longer do. But he said, I also work for Apple, but I work on the East Coast. I'm trying to move to the West Coast uh, and transfer to a store out there and make that my part-time job while I pursue a career in acting. But I wanted to ask you guys how you managed your Apple schedule to stay flexible enough to go on auditions. And this was actually a big <laughs> reason I got fired from Apple. <laughs> so, yeah, I was going to say, you I'm should not... <laughs> probably start this answer <laughs> because you are like the poster child for it not working out exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, that's a whole other story. Uh, there were other sort of pieces of the puzzle there, um, but that was the ultimate sort of... A lot of politics. Of, yeah, a lot of politics and changing of the guard and things like that, but that was ultimately the reason that was given uh, for, for me leaving the company. But... Uh, I know that things have changed at Apple a little bit, I think, with scheduling. How do you specifically make it work when auditions come up? What's it? What's that process look like for you? Yeah, it's kind of funny that this is so specific. Um, I would recommend that this job to a lot of actors, actually, if they um, had any interest in just, you know, excellent customer service retail kind of job. I mean, there's part, all the part-timers get benefits, health benefits. So I have health benefits, great, great benefits actually. <clears throat> and, uh, and a lot of other benefits as well. Um, you, you can't set your own schedule, but you can set your availability. Of course, the less you're available, the less you're going to work and the less money you're going to make. But I have, you know, created a, a availability for myself that allows me to also work at our other job, Trevor, which is at the, you know, the theater, I have kept myself in a, I don't want to call it a lower level position, but in a position where there is a large pool of people that could cover or take or split a shift with me should an audition come up. Now, all of that <clears throat> is to make sure that I am the, the most important thing, and this is what I learned, uh, I would say, as I approached my late 20s, all of that is just about showing up and being an adult, right? Mm. I'm an adult. You're an adult. We can handle this. I would always come to them. This is the really important part, and this this goes for any job that anyone out there has. I would always come to them with a solution instead of a problem. So if I found out at the last minute or whatever, or found out a few days in advance that I had an audition, I would not speak to a manager or anybody until I had some some kind of solution in place, either somebody to cover my shift, somebody to you know come in a little bit early to cover the last hour of my shift or something so I could leave early to get to this audition, whatever it was. And then I would go to a manager and say, hey, I have this audition, but I found so-and-so to cover this, to do that, blah, 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 blah. Is that okay? Yeah, of course. I've already solved the problem for them, right? They're like jazzed. So that goes for any job out there. 
Now, the other thing and the other reason why Apple might be a great option as a thrival job for somebody is recently they changed their time and attendance policy such that there really isn't a time and attendance policy. I mean, there is, but you don't really get demerits for like missing days and calling out and et cetera, et cetera. That being said, of course, there's going to be a conversation, right? If you're affecting the business, they're going to come to you and be like, hey, you're calling out a lot. Is there anything that we can do to support you? And if it doesn't change, then you may actually get let go because it's like, well, you're never here or we can't rely on you. It's a job. Like you have to show up for your job. If for whatever reason I had to leave early or call out for an audition, that would be the last like the worst case scenario, the last straw, the last you know resort and that is so therefore so rare because of all the other times when I'm handling it maturely that, you know, I have managers tell me all the time, like, yeah, you call out so infrequently. So it's just about handling, managing those circumstances, like to the best of your ability. And then beyond that, it should be so rare that you are doing something that affects the business that they they either barely notice or they do notice, but it's in a good way. Like, oh, wow, AJ called out today. That's so, hmm, that's weird. And and hopefully I can apply, I can, hopefully listeners can apply that to their job and it's not just, you know, Apple. What happens when you can't find a solution? It depends, obviously on a case by case basis. Sometimes I will just call out. I will just be like, you know what? It's been, you know, three months since I called out and I just I couldn't find a solution and I'll just call out and I won't say anything. I'll just be like, I can't come in today because <clears throat> you don't you don't have to offer a, a reason. It's not really required. I mean, maybe different managers at different stores or, you know, work differently, but I don't think it's required. You can just call out. But depending on the situation, I will do just that. I will go to <clears throat> a manager and be like, look, I have this audition. I've asked everyone. I can't find anybody to cover my shift, but I'm not going to be here. <laughs> so. I wanted to give you advance notice so that you could make the proper adjustments to make sure that the business is not as affected as it would be otherwise. It, it It's still a solution. It's still me being mature and sort of owning that choice. But especially Apple and the people that work there and the managers that work there are very attuned to or committed to a work-life balance and they get it. They get it. You know, I had a... I had a manager tell me once when this happened, I was like, I can't find anybody to cover my shift. She was like, just go and like almost looked like not upset, but just like, why are you talking to me right now? You need to go so you can get to this audition. And I was like, really? And she was like, look, I'm a manager in an Apple store. I'm not a producer of a, it was like a, it was like a audition for a TV show or a feature film. I'm not a producer of a TV show. I can't give you that job. Go. So you know, it was very cool and, and also helped me, um, you know, make sure that it was framed properly. Like she's right. I'm not going to book that job if I'm standing there selling a Mac, you know, <clears throat> I'm just, I'm not, I can only have an opportunity to book it if I actually go. For people listening, if you can find a job to support you while you build an acting career that, that has those values that puts people at the center of the business, man, good for you and stick with it. Because that's a company that's going to invest in you as much as you're going to invest in it. And it, it, it can be, as Apple shows, you know, it can be the big corporations. I mean, you know, all the all these ma- major corporations are always being attacked for human rights violations and things like that. But I think we can all agree that Apple's definitely on the 
the cleaner side of that uh, of, the, of all that stuff. Well, hopefully that was helpful, Edgar. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's absolutely true. Communication is really what it comes down to, you know. Com- absolutely, be, you know, showing up and communicating with uh, with with everyone. And, and I love what you said about bringing them a solution. Nobody wants a problem. Everybody wants a solution. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you can bring solutions, you are valuable to the company. Exactly. I don't want to be a problem. I don't want to be another thing you got to think about, you know. Awesome. Well, Edgar, thank you for the question. I uh, hope that helps. And anybody who's listening who has other thoughts on that, you know how to get in touch with us. Please do. So without further ado, part one of my chat with uh, director Brian Beasley. This is good stuff. As I said earlier, there's no secrets here. It is really all about hustle, vision, commitment, and who you know and who knows you. So enjoy this this interesting journey from Oklahoma through New York to L.A. Uh, as Brian gets himself established as a director. And enjoy the Hollywood stories, the very, very Hollywood stories that he uh, shares with us in this first part. And we'll catch you on the other side. Today we're talking with Brian Beasley, a photographer and filmmaker in Los Angeles, and Brian comes to us via our production coordinator, Jen Levin, because Brian directed a couple of films that she's been involved with, one of which she was in recently called Single Parent Date Night, and another which was a documentary about Twitter. So a lot to talk about between the documentary work, the film work you've done, the theater you've directed, the photography you've, you've done, uh, where you went to school. There's a lot to, to dig into uh, today. So, thank you for having me. So we, we like to usually start kind of at the beginning and get a feel for really what it is that drew you to this industry, because it's not the sanest choice no, <laughs> to, be, to be here and, and why <laughs> L.A. versus, you know, staying in New York. So, so let's start with where you were, where you grew up, where you were born, and, and what was that first sort of inkling to be involved in, in professional storytelling, as it were? Um, so I grew up in Oklahoma City. I had kind of a very straightforward and normal upbringing. You know, I think a lot of people, I'm 43 years old, and a lot of people of my generation basically, I think, kind of had the same story where they literally saw Star Wars as a, a small child, and it just opened my horizons. Like, I didn't I didn't know anything about movies or filmmaking, but that movie, like, totally resonated um, with me, even though I think I was only technically, I think I was only three years old, but, uh, you know, all the Spielberg stuff, ET and, uh, Indiana Jones. And was it all, you were always drawn to film and not necessarily a different medium? No. Yeah. It was always film later down the line. I really got into documentaries, but that wasn't until I got to NYU. And, uh, but when I was a kid, yeah, it was, I can remember I saw Ghostbusters, I think, 30 times that summer it came out basically because my, I have two younger brothers and my mother would just kick us out of the house 
you know, that's I think 84 was that summer. And just, there was a multiplex about half a mile away and we would ride our bikes. She'd give us $20, which was a lot of money. And we could go down there and spend the entire day. And it would be all the other kids from the neighborhood would all be there. We would sing the Ghostbuster theme song while it was on screen. And we would recite the words back to Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd. And then I can remember later on seeing Die Hard and that like had a huge effect on me in high school. Like I just thought it's the greatest Christmas movie ever made, quite honestly. It goes Die Hard and then A Wonderful Life. Those are the two Christmas movies <laughs> I watch every year. In there yeah, that's number three. Okay. I can, okay. Yeah, definitely. And A Christmas, Christmas Story, vacation. of course. And Christmas Story. Um, that's just in the background, though. That's like the screensaver of Christmas. Mm. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so, you know, in high school, I really dove into photography. I was lucky they had uh, the school I went to had a dark room. So that kind of opened up a visual medium for myself. I'm very lucky. My parents were very supportive, and uh, we started looking into film schools and Back in the early 90s, there were really only two undergrads, undergraduate programs, um, NYU and uh, USC. You know, there was, there was a lot of um, communications programs that you could go to where they kind of would teach film. Oklahoma University. I got into OU, got in, I got waitlisted by SMU and didn't get into USC um, and then got into NYU, which was a huge coup. I mean, it was like a real, I mean, it, that's like one of the moments in my life where I'm like, this is where it turned, you know, the right direction because, um, leaving Oklahoma city and spending four years in Manhattan, um, and going to NYU film school where they were, they literally gave us real film cameras and we were, we had, you know, Ron Howard was a guest speaker and Martin Scorsese was a guest speaker. Um, so my horizons were, you know, uh, grew, uh, significantly. And it was just, Meeting, I mean, my fellow students were kids from Paris and, you know, from all over the world and everyone, you know, people, kids from my, one of my roommates was from San Francisco. The other roommate was from Long Island and we had very different upbringings and it was just great. It was the four years I spent in New York were, were pretty fantastic. Did you ever doubt yourself? Did you ever wonder if this was actually Uh, the right, right path for you? (laughs) You know, it's yes and no, where... I'd come back to Oklahoma for the summers. Uh, the first two summers I was in college, I came back as I mow lawns. That was like my Beasley Brothers uh, mowing company, as it was called. <laughs> That's um, amazing. And uh, yeah, we had a trailer and both my little brothers. Yeah, we you make good money landscaping. We had, oh my god, we made yeah. great money. It was yeah. like my parents were like, "You can't stay home. You have to go get a job." So it was either we flip burgers for nothing, or we could mow lawns and get paid in cash. And we would we would mow. <laughs> I don't want to go off on a tangent, but we would mow these huge, like empty lot fields and get paid like, like a hundred bucks Yeah, and it would take yeah. half an hour and you're and outside. Yeah, and it was great. Yeah. yeah. So I remember catching up with a lot of the kids I went to high school with a lot of my buddies and they'd either gone to OU or OSU, Oklahoma state university. And they just had a very, it was almost like a continuation of high school for them. But the one thing I was definitely jealous of was they were all in fraternities and the sorority girls, they, they, we didn't have anything like that at NYU. Like, I was like, how are you dating this chick? Like, how is, I was like, at NYU was like going to work. Like we, there was Mm -hmm. no camp. I mean, there's kind of a campus, but like, there's no football team. There's not school. It was literally like, I went to 18 years old. I moved to New York and I went to work. 
And yeah. it was, yeah. you had, if you were going to meet people, you had to like go out and meet people. Uh, while at the big state schools that all my friends were going to, they, you know, they had sorority and fraternity parties. And so it was, I socially, I was like, am I doing the right, am I doing the right thing? Like everyone's having a good time. And I'm like, you know, mm, just socially. So you, you doubted it socially, but uh, not yeah, because the other familiar. aspect was the other aspect was, and I mean, I do have, uh, I mean, I guess everyone has a little bit of an ego, but like. I would come home to Oklahoma and be like, oh, my God, that's so awesome. Like, you live in New York. Like, I was living the dream that a lot of people were afraid. And still to this day, I'll go back to Oklahoma, and I'm, I have a very tight-knit group of kids that I went to high school with, and they're always like, oh, man, you were the one that got out. You were the one that got out. You know I was just going to say that. You were the one that and, got out. Uh, it, I don't know. So there was, there was, there was both elements like that that, that uh, you know, I, I was pretty focused and I also knew just how lucky I was to get into NYU. I mean, there was, there was only 300 kids in my class uh, at the film school, and I wasn't going to squander that. So I took full advantage, especially my last two years. Uh, I definitely was kind of in a little bit of uh, shell shock and in my, in maybe you know, kind of uh, hiding away from the world a little bit my first two years. But the last two years, I kind of had awakening going like, I live in one of the greatest cities in the world. Like, why am I not taking advantage of this? And like, and I'm talking about going to museums or going to off Broadway shows. I mean, just amazing art was all around me and I really embraced it. My, my last two years. Mm. So you have a thesis so, film that you guys shoot for it. NYU. That's right. Yeah. So when I graduated, I did a film called key the crime, um, which was a 100% blatant ripoff of Quentin Tarantino, <laughs> who was like my idol at the time. I think Reservoir Dogs came out my junior year, and then Pulp Fiction, I think, hadn't come out yet, but it was, you know, we, we knew it was on the way. And it was just a very straightforward action comedy with quirky characters. And um, I kind of thought that that's where my career would go, is that I would be direct, like diehard. Like I just thought that's kind of what I wanted to do big action blockbusters. It, it got me some attention. And the other thing was is that my last two years at NYU, I worked for Sigourney Weaver. I was her personal assistant at, or she'd started a, a production company. <clears throat> she'd gotten Alien 4, The Resurrection, I think it's called. So that was an internship. And so I told her, I was like, listen, I'm, I'll move out to Los Angeles. I got my little film under my arm. I'll move out to Los Angeles, but I need a job. And she's like, great, you can, I can get you a PA gig on Alien Resurrection. Wait, so, so how, I'm sorry, how did you connect with her? So the, uh, one of my really good friends uh, at NYU is a guy named Louis Leterrier. He actually did go on to become a big action director. And his godmother was Sigourney. And she had just started this production company. 20th Century Fox had given her all this money. And so she wanted to get into producing. And she just needed an intern. And so uh, Louis already had, I think he had some other gig or wasn't interested. So, um, yeah, he introduced me to her. We went to dinner. I literally told her how my Ghostbusters story. <laughs> I was like, I went to I Ghostbusters say, every. Man. This was every, meant to yeah, be. It really was. Yeah. And then the other thing was the two things we talked about. There's a great skit. Actually, it's Dana Carvey's first skit where he talks about chopping broccoli. Have you ever heard of this? I he, think I, he I, sings, I have. Like, he's, <laughs> he sings a song. She, Sigourney Weaver plays his girlfriend. She comes and she breaks up with him. And he's like, I'm going to write a song. And he talks about how she's chopping broccoli, which I just thought as a kid was so funny. So those are the two things that I would talk to her about. And I guess it, I guess I endeared 
endeared myself to her. Um, uh-huh. This little backwards kid from Oklahoma. Um, so yeah, so I, I I I interned for her for two years, and and then actually the great thing was I got to pass it on to one of my good friends. You know, uh, you know, and the internship lasted for I don't know fifteen years, and they, like every new intern would pass wow. it on to somebody else. I graduated NYU in '96, and they I think they shot the that film in the fall of '96, and I came right out. That's awesome. Because one of my questions was a lot of people say like you know where where's the missing link to this career? Like you hear me so many stories where it's like oh yeah I was I was cleaning carpets and then. Uh, Moved to L.A. and then uh, got a role in a in James Cameron film. And it's like, <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa yeah. how did this happen? So it's cool to hear that, again, it's about relationships and friends who have friends, who have family members, who are yeah, looking for it, people to help them out. That whole thing was definitely a lesson in kind of how Hollywood works. Mm. Uh, the... Yeah, and and Louis was just a, I mean, he was just a kid that I met that was on my floor. You know what I'm saying? Oh wow! He was just yeah. the strange kid from Paris that we we kind of all made fun of. Did everybody he, know that his his aunt or whatever it was? No, was you know his dad. His dad is a director out of Paris, and I think it had gotten around. And he directed one. Do you remember the Emmanuel films? They were kind of like risque. They're not porn, but they're not not. Porn. I don't think I. So okay, well, in the early, in the late '80s, early '80s, like they put out these French films that were erotic films, uh, and his dad uh, had directed one of them. So we used to mock him a lot. But I also was in class with. Do you remember Jerry O'Connell? Who was? Oh yeah. So he was my grade at NYU too, and I think he kind of stole the thunder. Everyone was like, "Oh, it's that kid from Stand by Me." So (laughs) so poor Louis got to fly under the radar a little bit. Like um, so. But they've both gone on to do great things. Wow. So. so, so you make Sergey Weaver. You in, mm-hmm. endeared yourself to her, as you said, and then uh, eventually you had that. That was your ticket out to L.A. and to start was, immediately yeah. working in the industry. Yeah, I got. I was making uh, three hundred and fifty bucks a week. I live living at Park La Brea. I thought it was king of the world, man. I had a wonderful apartment in Manhattan on Twelfth Street and Fourth Avenue. I had two really great roommates. Um, but we lived in a shoebox. I mean, we literally lived in a tiny, tiny apartment. And I remember coming out to Los Angeles. I spent one winter here and I was like, I'm never leaving. I love Los Angeles and NYU. I think, especially when I was there, had a bit of a chip on his shoulder of like, we make independent filmmakers. We make the Spike Lees we make the Scorsese's we're not USC. They make, you know, they make the George Lucas's. And I came out here and I was like, screw that. You can, <laughs> I want to be in, I want to be in Hollywood. I want to be out here in LA. And the weather had a lot to do with that. Cause I kind of, I kind of thought of myself as like the gateway to the West because all my classmates would come out and spend you know a month on my couch at Park La Brea as they would kind of either they acclimated to L.A. and they loved it or they thought it was too shallow or whatever their problems were and they'd go back to New York. I instantly hit the ground running and I've been here 20 years and it was uh, to that, uh, Halloween of 2016 was my 20 year anniversary. Wow. In Los Angeles. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. So, so when your internship with Sigourney Weaver's production company was up, which you said, I think it. It was about yeah, two since years. I graduated, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so two years later, you're in LA, and then do you just not have a job, and you're then looking for something? Yeah. How, what so, happened next? So yeah, so I did the the, the uh, PA job at on on Alien Resurrection only lasted you know two or three months or whatever, and there was another girl that that uh, I went to NYU with who's who uh, Marissa Katz, who's her family lives out here. Her parents kind of took me under their wing, and I uh, met some other young people. And there's a guy named Matt Kaminsky who worked at Viacom Productions as a runner. And they, it just kind of worked out that the PA job ended, and they were looking for a new runner. So I did that 
for about a year and a half. And what was amazing about that is that they had offices uh, at Universal Studios, but Viacom Productions was in Westwood. And so we were constantly running dailies of such such hit TV shows as Sabrina the Teenage Witch <laughs> and Diagnosis Murder, uh, running those uh, dailies to the likes of Fred Silverman and Dean Hargrove and other big 80s TV producers. But it was amazing because I got to learn my way around Los yeah, Angeles. Yeah, I, was say. I mean, it was like I still come in the valley and I'm like, oh, we take we take more park and take a left here. Like, like I still like my little brain will kick <laughs> yeah. in. And I had the Thomas guide and the whole thing. Um, it was before the era of smartphones oh and GPS. Like and we had pagers. Like I can remember like if you got a page and said 911, you had to stop immediately and get to a payphone because somebody has requested a tape and we had to hit, get back to the dub room and wow. get these dailies that no one was actually watching <laughs> out wow. to people. So you went from PA, mm-hmm. which is everything from like just getting coffee yeah, to like I mean, I was, moving I, Yeah, I was just Sigourney's kid on the cool. set. Like I did whatever she needed. I just, you know. Yeah, so you went from that to being a runner. Yeah. But like how did you transition into photographing celebrities like Dave Grohl and well, so William Shatner and, and that, then also becoming a director? Yeah, so the one, yeah. So obviously the, being young, you're just, you know, full spunk and you're ready to go. And I definitely had like, oh, I'm going to come out to L.A. and I'm just going to take over. And I had my little 16 millimeter film and I can remember renting projection rooms and inviting like, you know, calling CAA and calling agents and be like, hey, I'm I'm screening my student film that I almost got a uh, student academy award with. And like. 10% of them would send, send their assistants, you know what I'm saying? And so there'd be like three people in the room and those kids were maybe a year older than me. And they're like watching this film and they're like, okay, oh, well, you know, thanks. And I was, it was a real kind of eye opener. I was like, oh, like this, this industry just doesn't, it's, it's, it's not easy. You have, you know what I'm saying? Like uh, there was, I knew that there was going to be a lot of work that, that had to be done and I had to pay. The Actually, work. I, I want to pause on that yeah, for, yeah. for one quick second, because I think that's something that a lot of people who move out to LA run into. They come from being sort of a, a big fish in a small pond right. and they come out here and realize there's a whole different context, a whole different set of tastes that goes into things. And that can be a really rude awakening for some people. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think I kind of knew Obviously, it wasn't going to be easy, but I, I definitely thought that I was going to make a bigger dent a lot sooner. Yeah. And, you know, I definitely got disillusioned with being, you know, running tapes for these, you know, hit TV shows, but very mediocre in my standards. It wasn't what I wanted to do. And the next thing that came along was, why don't I have, I have a photography background. Why don't I start shooting actors' headshots? So in 2000, um, I left the runner job. Actually, I got fired. And uh, oh wait, you got to tell this story. How'd you get fired <laughs> from the runner job? I also very very Hollywood story. There was my my point person who handled all the runners, and then there was her boss who was kind of our boss, obviously boss's boss. And we only met with him. I only met with him twice, and it was once a year. And he usually would just kind of like, hey, great work, da da da. Like he didn't pay any attention to what we were doing. So the second I'd been there almost a year and a half, the shows were, get, were getting ready to go into hiatus. And they, it just meant that it, our job would just get real easy because we weren't doing a whole lot. But they weren't, you know, they had to keep us around for small things. And so I legitimately thought he was calling me in to promote me. Uh, and the guy who was right above me, one of the other runners who was literally hired a year before me, he was a total stress case. And I think he drove people nuts. And in my brain, I was like, I can't believe they're promoting me over Derek. Like that guy has been here longer than me. And they're, <laughs> this is how 
this is how wrong I was. So then I come in, I sit in this guy's big office in Westwood, and he goes, Brian, uh, we're making some changes. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, and today's your last day. And I was just like, what? Um, it literally was like I physically got sick to my stomach. I was, I was like, I – because I considered myself to be a really hard worker and like, I, you know, uh, if there was something wrong, I was, I felt that I was very, very proactive and getting, you know, fixing whatever the problem was. And so I kept, you know, my, my dad has always been like, if, you know, take, take a life lesson out of everything, you know, if someone, if life throws you a curveball, take, take a lesson from that. So I can remember sitting in his office and being like, why are you firing me? Like, how can I learn from this so that I don't make this mistake again? You asked him that oh, flat I, out. I flat out. And awesome. he goes, he literally just goes, we know things. And I was just like, what does that mean? You know, like, it's not like I had a $400 a week job. It wasn't like I'm embezzling. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. they're, 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 I, I stole videotape. Like, there was, it was absurdity. So I kept going, well, no. And I wouldn't leave his office. I was like, you need to tell me why you're firing me. So, and it wasn't about like, I'm going to stew you. It was like, I need to know how I better myself as a person. And he just kept repeating. We know things, we know things. And today's your last day. Da da da. Long story short is that, uh, I was still friends with all the guys there. When the hiatus came back, they came back online. Uh, I went to lunch with one of them and he goes, dude, did you, do you know why you got fired? And I was like, why? He's like, his nephew had just graduated college and you were the low man on the totem pole and that guy needed a job because he was coming out of coming out of college. Wow. Complete nepotism. So I was out, they weren't they didn't you know, they didn't need me for the you know, when the shows were in hiatus and they hired his nephew to, wow. to take my job. So so between the <laughs> But it was the best thing that happened to me because it I literally walked out of his office, I walked <laughs> into the lobby and I remember picking up the phone and I had heard that this kid, Kevin Jordan, who I went to NYU with, who I was decently close with, was getting ready to direct his first film here in L.A. And I called this other guy, Ryan Rothmeyer, who's, who is a good friend of mine. And, and uh, I go, Ryan, you're producing Kevin's film. He's like, I don't have a job. I'll work for free. He goes, we need a second AD. I was like, fine, I'm in. And I started like two days later. I was second AD on a film called uh, "Goat on Fire" and "Smiling Fish," wow, uh, awesome. which is a great little independent film you can find on Netflix. It won the Toronto Film Festival. I really look at getting fired as the, besides getting into NYU, one of the best things that happened to me because I had just fallen into kind of a like, oh, this is easy. Like I'm getting a good paycheck. The, the other stuff will come, but it wasn't going to come. I needed to get fired. I needed to get uh, literally a fire lit under my ass and. Um, I haven't had a day job since. Isn't that funny how, how it's, I think everybody has a story sort of along those lines right. where they go, this, this moment that could have ended my life yeah, ended right. up being the biggest gift I could have possibly gotten. Yeah, it was, it definitely like, and I'm not going to lie. I was, I was like, how am I going to pay my rent? Like, I mean, it was, it was definitely a, a, I remember coming out of his office and just being like in a daze, like, how did that just happen? Um, but it, it, it definitely was like one of the better things that happened to me. Um, and then, yeah, so then when that film ended, that's when I started my photography company. Hey folks, welcome back. Um, like the, uh, the uh, last couple of interviews, and uh, with with Trevor, I am at the disadvantage of not having been able to uh, attend this one, and therefore I have not heard it. But I'm really excited. I I, I read through uh, the notes that you uh, that you posted, Trevor, and um, it sounds like uh, 
sounds like like you said like an in, one one hell of a story you know yeah it's pretty cool man it's pretty cool yeah part two uh is got more good stuff and and brian has been described as an actor's director and so we really talk about what that means to him and what uh that means to the actors he worked with and it's pretty enlightening stuff so oh, stay tuned awesome. yeah yeah so picks of the week i love this part of the episode <laughs> uh your pick of the week is a is a poem by oriah am i saying that correctly yeah i it's i don't think it's her birth name but um <clears throat> she has a, a connection or an upbringing with the native people native americans i was gonna say the native people of america but the native americans and um derived this name i think her full the full name she goes by is oriah mountain dreamer so that gives you an indication of, you know, the kind of connection to um, native culture that she has. Um, she's an author. She's got a, a few books and a bunch of stuff on Sounds True, which is a pick of the week of mine from a few months back. So if you would like to, you know, jump into sort of the audiobook world, this might be a great place to start. And a great reminder about Sounds True. Um, so her name is AriahMountainDreamer.com is her website, but on the website, and I, I, I was considering reading it, but we don't have that, uh, enough time for that. So I'm not going to do that today, but on her website, one of the first things you'll see on the left-hand side of the home page is one of the most beautiful poems I have ever heard in my entire life. And um, it has touched the soul of every person who has, uh, who I know who has read it. Or every person I have read it to, I hope the universality of it extends to our listeners and that you get just as much out of it as I did. Um, th the poem itself is really my pick of the week, um, but you know it it may lead you to uh, investigate some of her other her other writings. But yeah, I'm, I've been just sort of glancing through it as you've been talking, and wow, this verse sticks out to me. I want to know if you can live with failure yours and mine, and still stand at the edge of the lake and shout to the silver of the full moon, yes. That is... Yeah. Oof. Wow. Yeah. Yours and mine. Failure, yours and mine. Hmm. It's like a poem that encapsulates some of the emotional intelligence that is severely lacking in this in this world. It is a poem that will expose ego, hmm. you know? And so anyway, uh, please enjoy. That's beautiful. Right on. Uh, what is your pick of the week, my friend? So I alluded to this a few, well, maybe like a dozen episodes now uh, ago. Uh, it's a book by a woman named Dr. Melanie Joy. And I, I remember I said like, oh, you know, when I read this book, I'll report back and let you guys know what, you know what it's like. And the book is called Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows, An Introduction to Carnism. And uh, it is exactly what you think it's about. It's it's a psychological deep dive into this, what she calls an invisible belief system. And she calls that invisible belief system carnism. And, you know, in, in our society, we have people who eat you know, no animal products at all. And we call them vegans. We have people who eat some animal products and we frequently call them some form of vegetarian. We have people then that also eat animals. Um, and we don't have a label for them. They're just called normal people. But 
she really starts to unpack what that means. What does that mean when we when we cringe at the thought of having a golden retriever carcass carved up and put into our beef stew, but we're fine with it being a cow or a pig? Like, what what is it that drives that? And carnism is is the label she applies to it. If, if veganism is a thing, then why should eating animals not be a thing? And she calls it carnism, and it's just a, she. She brings up a lot of interesting psychological principles. She's a you know a certified psychologist and sociologist, and does all sorts of you know work on this kind of thing. And it's a very difficult book to read. At sometimes, um, if you want to know the, tr- the truth of where your carnitas burrito came from, this is a good book to read. If you don't want to know the truth, then don't read this. Um, but it's <laughs> it's uh, it's just I, I found it really interesting just to. The book, you know, there's it's a little emotionally charged, but it's much more about like, here's what's happening in our brains when we we plug into this culture that values these things and completely doesn't value these things and doesn't value these other things to the point where it fights to make them invisible. And we train ourselves to numb ourselves out to the reality of it. It's it's very interesting. So people listening to this know that I'm a pretty um, impassioned animal rights person. I, I'm not a big fan of the idea of killing and eating animals now that I've sort of learned what I've learned. So if you are at all interested in that, this is a great book to check out. If, Like I said, if you if you don't want to know some of the gory details, uh, not only of what happens uh, every moment of every day in slaughterhouses around the world, but also what happens in your own mind every time you decide to eat a burger and pet your dog at the same time, then this isn't a good book to read. <laughs> Uh, but I, I found it really, really interesting and fascinating. It's a fairly short book, but uh, a deep dive, man. It, it'll open some. It'll open your eyes for sure. Mm. Uh, I appreciate the uh, the disclaimer. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I never want to like force this kind of thing on people, but I will say somebody had to sort of force it on me to get me to pay attention. Um, so it's a fine line that we walk, you know, I want to respect others' beliefs, but at the same time, it's like when you really connect to what's happening, it's, it's worse than your worst nightmares. What's happening right now to defenseless animals that think and feel just as deeply as your pets do and as deeply as you do. And, um, you know, it's like when you really connect to that, it's like you want to do everything you can to stop it. And that often comes off in a really abrasive way to, to people who aren't, aren't, aren't as acquainted with that as, as you are. So that's been a, a big struggle for me lately. So I, I'm just going to, I'll share this book, recommend everybody read it, but with that disclaimer, because I understand that um, not everybody's ready for that kind of thing. It's, it's a, uh, there's actually a whole chapter in there on witnessing and how important she feels witnessing is to the human experience and to culture and to our, our mission as compassionate beings and, it's beautiful, difficult, very difficult, but beautiful. So check it out. It's a powerful book. Uh, cool. So that is uh, The Invitation, a poem by Oriah and Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows by Dr. Melanie Joy. And then we have a listener pick that comes our way from Tara Patterson. This this was something she uh, shared with us a few weeks ago when we were really talking about this whole Donald Trump thing that's happening in our country right now. <laughs> this whole Donald Trump thing. It's just <laughs> that, thing. I don't know what else to call it at this point. I turn on the news and no, I'm like, I'm, are you kidding me? I'm 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 on board. I'm I'm yeah. I'm, I'm embellishing actually what you're saying because it is it is it's just it's a thing. Yeah. It's a thing that's happening. It really is. Uh, and I'm you know, I'm uh, I'm going to admit I have actively been tuning in to 
traditionally conservative news channels because I I really want to like see <laughs> what is it that that people see in this guy as a as a leader and, and you trust in his taste and everything and it's just anyway Tara Patterson sent us this this link to a 30 minute audio recording um with Abraham Hicks and for anybody who's familiar with Esther Hicks and Abraham Hicks and all that stuff Esther Hicks is this woman who can channel um this sort of otherworldly being I know this sounds nuts but if you check out um, some of her work it makes a little more sense uh, she can channel the sort of infinite intelligence and wisdom, and, and basically she does these sessions where people gather and she sort of shares this wisdom. and And somebody was asking her about Donald Trump and all this stuff, and and what she shares, or what Abraham shares, I guess via her, is is pretty profound stuff. You know, it's all about the nature of personal reality and how we all create our own reality, and we are all responsible for the results in the world. And we, you know, what we focus on expands, and all that stuff. It's really interesting, and it definitely does drive home the idea that we are all constantly creating this reality, and we can change it in the blink of an eye with our thoughts. And I know that sounds super new agey and out of touch with with things, but give it a listen. It's it, it, it may um, it may pique your interest. Any, anything helps at this point. Uh, anything else you want to you want to squeeze in before we wrap this up? No, man. Let's do this. Today's episode of Inside Acting was produced and co-hosted by yours truly, AJ Meyer, and of course Trevor Algad. Jen Levin is our production coordinator. Gadali Gubrick is our marketing web director. Deborah Smith is our community manager, and Fern Lim designed our logo. You can sign up for our weekly email dispatch and listen to all of our episodes at our website, InsideActing.net. We're also on social media and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. And if you got a minute, please go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps a lot. Special thanks to our sponsors, Rehearsal Pro and Vio2Go. Go-go.com. And thanks to you, of course, our listeners. You are the reason for the season. You're the reason why we do these podcasts. You can visit our website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, get links to everything we talked about in this episode. And if you'd like, support the con- continued production of the show uh, with a small or large financial contribution. You can make a one-time, no-strings-attached, tax-deductible contribution via PayPal, Square, or Venmo, or sign up as an Inside Acting member for just 7 bucks a month. Visit InsideActing.net to learn more and show us some love. And that's it for episode 267 of Inside Acting. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. And in the meantime, be the solution. Be the solution.